Welcome to the Smarter World podcast, focusing on the technology and issues behind today's connected world. I'm your guest host, John Quain. In this episode, we're going to delve into the complex safety technologies that protect drivers in today's connected vehicles, and we'll explore some of the challenges at the forefront of this evolving field. Connected and increasingly autonomous vehicles offer those of us on the road a lot of benefits. But as the cars become more electronic, more like rolling computers, the role of safety becomes absolutely critical. How will a car respond when something goes wrong in its electronic system or in a single component? That's what safety seeks to anticipate and protect against. To gain insight into vehicle safety, I'm joined by Gareth Price, Functional Safety Manager at McLaren Applied, and Frank Galtzi, Director, Automotive Functional Safety at NXP Semiconductors. Welcome, gentlemen. All right. Hi. Hi, John. Well, Gareth, let me start with you. We all know about the things that make cars safe today, like tire pressure monitoring systems and airbags and ABS brakes, and even some of the ADAS or advanced driving assistance systems that are in cars like radar, obviously, and uh, V to X communication and blind spot detection. But what is the safety like in the world that you and Frank live in, in the world of functional safety? So for me, it's really about risk. It's about quantifying the risk involved in the deployment of these, these new features that you just you mentioned, new and old features. And basically, functional safety is, uh, if you're in the business, it's, it's the business of producing these automotive components or products that are free from unreasonable residual risk. This is a term that we use to kind of quantify what we mean by risk. And as you said, that 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 can be that the risk can be associated with anything from gearboxes to cruise control systems. So we, we know there are inherent risks in the use of these these items, these these components within a vehicle. And we know that when they go wrong, there are there are hazards. There are hazards that put life at risk. This is the risk we're talking about, not necessarily financial, but the risk of harm. And we want to reduce that risk. We, 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 as engineers, we admit that we're, we're not going to be perfect and there will always be some risk left. We're, we're never going to be able to design perfect systems um, that, are, that have no risk in them whatsoever. And driving by its nature is a very risky uh, thing to do. Lots of people die on the roads every year. I think there's 1.3 million is a, a number usually banded around. So people somehow take on that risk when they go about their daily business in their vehicles. But at the same time, they're not expecting the vehicles to fail unexpectedly. So when they use the brakes, they expect them to work. When they change gear, they expect it to work. So in this business of, of developing systems like gearbox controllers, we need to to rate the risks involved in the use of these these uh, these products. And usually, the best way to do that is to to use something that somebody's used before. And this is where the International Standards Organization comes in and helps us out. So they've created this standard ISO two six two six two that focuses on things like random hardware failures and systematic failures within these components that, that, that uh, I've been talking about. And this standard gives us some guidance. It's not a legally binding document. Uh, it is just guidance, but it helps us to try and evaluate the risks uh, of the use of these systems and the detection and mitigation 
of these hazards, these inherent hazards. So it gives us some guidance. There are other standards as well. There's um, ISO PASS 21448, which is commonly known as SOTIF, safety of the intended function. And this is associated with more highly autonomous vehicles or ADAS systems, where it's not necessarily a random hardware failure that's gonna cause some kind of hazard, but it's potentially the intended function, the actual feature that is being provided that is inherently dangerous. Something like cruise control. If it goes wrong, you know, you're either gonna crash into the back of the car or all of a sudden it's gonna break. You know, it's going strangely wrong. So this, uh, this SOTIF standard is there to try and formulate a way of, again, evaluating the risk involved in those kind of um, features or the limitation of the performance of those kind of features. So we sort of got two areas covered here. We've got the deterministic land of hardware failures, systematic failures, and we've got this non-deterministic world of intended function, cruise control, you know. And I usually use the analogy cruise control, well, how can that go wrong as an intended function? Well, if you've developed the system badly, maybe the cruise control, the radar involved in it can't detect, you know, heavy snow or doesn't know what to do with heavy snow. It may imagine that it's an object and put the brakes on. Uh, that's a good breakdown. People don't expect, as you said, the transmission to stop or the brakes to suddenly fail. Front, maybe you can tell us a little bit of how that functional safety sort of came to be and, and what the core of it was. I guess a, a lot of engineers used to tell me, we don't have, it's not like a computer where we have one chip. We have two or three. We build a lot of redundancy into that. Is that sort of where all this started to happen? The beginning of the story was that we used to have uh, cars which were mostly mechanical cars right and not so much electronic inside and then with the uh, the new features and also the new uh, all the new features starting with the abs was one of the first one where we we said oh great electronics can really help and save lives and uh, abs esp this kind of thing so we had more and more electronic uh, systems into the car and then it was like uh, I mean, in some of the design, we see up to uh, 60, 70 ECUs uh, here and there in the car. So it's, it's, it becomes very huge. And this is, I think, the reason why we, had, we have seen, um, uh, let's say, from the return from the field, that there was more and more return from the field because of electronic failures. And because the electronic is supposed to, uh, uh, let's say, bring added value. Uh, to the car and help you to be, I would say, either safer or, or drive uh, in a more comfortable way. This was actually bringing additional, let's say, failures or failures in the system and then sometimes can become very dangerous. I mean, it's, uh, it's quite straightforward to understand that when we started to include, uh, let's say, um, electric power steering um, into a vehicle. And then it's great to have this kind of very smooth assistance, you know, and the, uh, the, the steering system with an electrical motor. But we can easily understand that if there is a failure somewhere and the motor is just starting to turn on the right and, and it's unexpectedly, it can become very dangerous if you are driving on the highway, right? So, and this is exactly the essence of this uh, ISO 262, as Gareth mentioned, is that it's really about this either, let's say, systematic fault, which is the wrong design of the electronics. So you made the design, but then there are some still some bugs inside. And this uh, hardware random fault perspective, which is more like, okay, I did a good design, 
But unfortunately, the electronic is not perfect, right? And you can still have some kind of failures during the operation of the device or during the life cycle of the device. It can be a gate oxide breakdown or it can be any kind of uh, short circuit between different lines of, uh, of a microcontroller or of an IC or whatever in your electronic design. And then this can become really dramatic, right? And I think this is the reason why we had this uh, new ISO 26262 standard, which came up, I think it was 2010, right? 2011. And um, the benefit of this standard is actually that we have a kind of state of the art. It's, it's defined actually a state of the art, which will be common to everybody. Uh, everybody will design somewhere with his own way and without any standardization, then how can we compare, uh, let's say, a design A with a design B? And how can we be sure that we can have a good level of confidence? in the design and and because at the end this is this is what is needed right the driver as a driver when i drive my car i want to be sure that the features that i have in my car are not dangerous but they, i can really trust them so it's really a question of trust and um, as an electronic provider i mean NXP is a semiconductor manufacturer, so we are, let's say, tier two. We are part of the chain, and then we, I mean, we need to prove that what we did is actually, we did a good job, right? So, and we did everything which is as good as possible based on the state of the art. And at least this standard has the, the advantage to uh, define the state of the art. What we should not, let's say, forget as well is that at the end, as Garrett said, is that we want to save life. And if there is an issue and that we are killing people because... As you said, we cannot be perfect, right? We know that perfection does not exist. And uh, and then at the end, we still have a residual risk. And the risk is acceptable or not. But at the end, when you kill somebody, even if it's still in the, in the acceptable residual risk, you kill somebody, right? And then everybody will try to understand why. So there is also behind a kind of liability, I would say not issue, but at least a liability concern where you need to demonstrate that you did everything right. You you have not made any kind of uh, negligence or whatever during the design or during the validation of your product, or that you have not uh, hidden anything in the in the, in the safety documentation that you are delivering to your customer or whatever. You're absolutely right. It's not you can reboot your smartphone or your laptop, but you can't reboot your car going 65 miles an hour or you know 100 kilometers an hour down the road. That's not really an option. Uh, maybe, so maybe we could get to some sort of examples. Um, Frank, you're talking about the individual chips and semiconductor and those components. But Gareth, you're also involved in the much more practical, most cars that most of us drive and the systems that go in that you have to sort of integrate this into a complete system. Maybe you could explain as a brief example of the kind of functional safety considerations when you do that and how that works. As you can imagine, we start, you know, we start at the top with a vehicle and a driver that's that's in, that's in, in effect our environment that's what we're trying to argue over that's where we're trying to find solutions to problems potentially and usually we're, we're adding a feature to the vehicle so something topical an electric motor for example you know lots of vehicles now are delivered with electric motors within them to provide economy for McLaren cars, it's more providing performance and economy, depending on the mode of operation. Um, these things are becoming very important, and they're, they're not novel technology. Electric motors have been around for a while, so the kind of failure modes associated with them are understood. You know, they fail. They stop driving. They stop providing this torque to the road surface in some way. So we, we start to analyze the object of our interest. So, for example, if I'm making an electric motor, 
I'm going to analyze that electric motor and the inverter that's providing it with the energy in the context of the vehicle. And I'm going to assume that it's going to go wrong in some way. And some of the worst hazards that you can have, I think um, Frank alluded to this earlier, the yawing effect. If you're traveling across the road into oncoming traffic, that's really dangerous. Although it's not so dangerous because the front of the car tends to be uh, a crumple zone. Side impacts tend to be very, very dangerous. So if you're coming across the road, you're presenting the side of the vehicle to oncoming traffic. So it's highly dangerous. Um, and therefore we rate it as such. We say the risk associated with these yawing hazards is high. Therefore we've got to do a lot of work to ensure that these things don't happen. So we've, we've analyzed the vehicle. We know these hazards occur with this electric motor. Uh, then we start saying, okay, what are we going to do if the hazard occurs? We don't try and work out the probability of it occurring. We just assume it is going to occur if it's physically possible. And then we start saying, well, what do we do? How do we detect it happening? And what are we going to do to mitigate the hazards involved in the scenario that, that the vehicle is in? And that's when we come up with what we tend to call safety goals. And these are the top level requirements to ensure the safety. So for example, with an electric motor, let's say it goes wrong, it creates a large braking force, you know, usually they're regenerating um, energy back into the battery. So they do, they do provide some braking effect. If that goes wild, you may create instabilities in the vehicle. So your safety goal may be written to sort of avoid that. So you may say, okay, I want to prevent unintended deceleration. It's unintended because the driver doesn't expect it. There's been a failure. So then we've got our first requirement. That's what we're going to do. We're just going to try and prevent that unintended deceleration. Now, unfortunately, one of the solutions would be to turn everything off. Well, you've still got a decelerative force then because you're no longer driving. So a lot of the time, these mitigations and these safety goals actually only reduce the hazard. They don't necessarily get rid of it completely, especially if the hazard is very, you know, very high. And once we've done that, we look at the system level, we go down into the software. It's, it's a standard development process. Is there specificity in some of the standards for situations like that? The, the reason I ask is adaptive cruise control. So when that would introduce, some cars would stop and you'd sit there for two seconds and then the, they'd release the brake. And some cars stop and hold onto the brake. They hold the brake even when the system's disabled. Are the standards that specific for these systems? For, for ISO 26262, ISO 21448, not really. They're, they're really framing uh, a development process and a description of the evidence that you must produce to provide some kind of assurance that the product that you have developed is free from unreasonable risk. Doesn't tell you what you need to do doesn't tell you the functionality. You need to argue over that. So something like adaptive cruise control, yeah, it's very different from different manufacturers, the way it reacts. In fact, I, I was in my car the other day and it's, it's a relatively new car and it doesn't have a handbrake. It has a button now that I can put on and off. And I was just playing around with it and accidentally put on the handbrake. <laughs> and the handbrake came on and the car started to decelerate. And I couldn't turn it off. I was thinking, oh, if I, if I turn it off, oh, it won't turn off. It's stuck. And it continued to be engaged oh. until the vehicle came to a stop. And then it disengaged. And I thought to myself, somebody's planned that on purpose. That isn't something that's happened accidentally. 
somebody has worked out that they think with some evidence that is the safest thing to do when the handbrake is applied during travel so they're obviously measuring the speed and going why would somebody want to put the handbrake on they're not a rally driver you know why would somebody want to do that they're obviously either in distress or there's a problem maybe the you know the, the concept the safety concept associated with that scenario is to engage you know continue to engage the handbrake so there was no failure there. Actually, there was a failure. It was me, <laughs> which is usually the, the weakest link in this whole story. It's usually the driver doing something wrong or reacting to a failure in such a way. I mean, we always say you really want these safety mechanisms to kick in before the driver realizes because they are bound to overreact. It's just human nature. They'll overreact to make the situation even more hazardous. Right. So you really want to get in there as soon as possible or don't vary what you're doing. Don't turn the handbrake off and on and off and on because that'll really scare somebody and they'll start to panic. Just do something as benign as possible. So it's that kind of, you're searching out the benign. And as you said, the different manufacturers have different ideas of what that is. Now, there is some standardization coming in, especially now that now, you know, more autonomous features are coming in that are highly complex, like Tesla's autopilot, you know, like these adaptive cruise control, highway pilot, whatever you want to call them. I think these are trade names. How the driver actually understands the use of that feature, they're not going to read the manual. Nobody reads the manual. They just get in and they, you know, I can do this thing. I can use this function. They may not read the small print that says, actually, this is only usable really in these traffic situations. If you use it outside of those traffic situations, we can't detect that you're doing that. And actually that feature may not be safe. People don't read things like that. They just get in and use them. So yeah, it's a minefield. I think um, there are efforts out there to come up with standardized use of these functions, but usually they're standardized testing methodologies. So proving that the function doesn't fail very regularly is robust in its design rather than the use of it. I want to return to that in a minute, but I also wanted to ask Frank about the, the components. You know, we started out saying, well, gee, when the electronics got really complicated, they, you know, years ago, they were responsible for more failures, which was the exact opposite of what we were trying to do. Um, now we kind of take the chips for granted. We take, you know, radar for granted. We take the, the ECUs for granted. They almost, I mean, knock on wood, but they rarely fail for me. You know, I test a lot of cars and hold on to cars for years. How did you get to that point in terms of the functional safety? So I think that's uh, exactly what Garrett explained on the system level. We do exactly the same at the semiconductor level. Garrett mentioned that the safety goals, which are really at the system level. So we are far from the safety goals when we develop a microcontroller or a microprocessor. Uh, however, what we have to do is that we have to define what we call our top level safety requirements. And we have to assume some safety goals for sure. And then trying to understand what is the top level safety requirements that we can derive from those safety goals and that will be applicable to our own components so microprocessor, sensor, IC, whatever component we are developing. So it becomes our safety goals. So we don't call it safety goals. We just call it top level safety requirements. And then similar approach than at system level, you'll analyze the functions that you have to realize with your device and then you analyze all the failure modes that you can encounter and then you look at all the failure modes and you try to tackle all the failure modes so at least to detect and uh, react on all the failure modes and or mitigate the effect of the failure modes 
so it's the similar approach than at system level. We have for sure getting more and more experience in the semiconductor industry about functional safety. And then in the automotive industry, the ISO 26262, as you may know, is actually coming from the IEC 6158, which is more like industrial standard. Uh, in the IEC 61508, most of the constraints are really put at the system level. And you can use any kind of semiconductor component. You can use any microcontroller or sensor or whatever to, to, to build your system as long as you manage the redundancy and the safety channels and safety functions at the system level. For the automotive, this is uh, uh, quite different. I mean, automotive is always uh, trying to reach a more integration level and then cost reduction, as you know, and then having more and more features into the semiconductor and then into, uh, into system on chip or very complex ICs. And the ISO 26262 is actually pushing functional safety down to the component itself, which is not the case for the industrial domain. And uh, this means that we, as a semiconductor company, we have to develop our components, and this is called safety element out of context. So it means that we don't develop one specific component for one specific system, but we expect to have multiple customers. As you can imagine, we don't want to have only one customer in one system. We want to sell our microprocessor to everywhere, everybody in the world, right? And we expect to use our microcontroller for steering system, for ADA system, or even if it's not exactly the same every time, we have some kind of, of microprocessor, but then what we do is that we develop uh, following this uh, safety element out of context, and then we can ensure that we are analyzing all the failure modes of our devices, putting the right safety mechanisms and safety measures in place, and we confirm with safety analysis that our architecture is actually safe. And this is what we deliver to our customer, and this is how we can, let's say, give a level of confidence and we can get the trust from our customer. And they can trust our development and they say, okay, we can use this device in our AZLD system because we know that they have made all the analysis and so on and they have given all the evidences. Interesting. I assume too you, you kind of overcompensate in a way because if it's going to be an automotive, that's probably the most reliable level that you can make even though that ship may go into a, an e-bike that's only going to go 28 kilometers an hour and maybe into a tablet that it doesn't really matter if it fails once in a while but that you have to really gauge for that automotive application. Yeah, absolutely right. I mean, indeed we are imagine that we do a kind of over design but actually you're right we have any way to target the highest uh, let's say AZ level and the, the most critical system that we are targeting so if it's like if we said that the same device will will go in a motorbike as you said or will go in a McLaren car then it's the same for us we have to develop in the same way and we have to to consider the uh, highest constraints what also impact us quite a lot with this uh, nice uh, safety element out of context is that we can develop without being in the context of an item so really for a specific system so we have some kind of a freedom but on the other side as you said we have to comply with the standard for multiple type of use cases which will bring additional let's say safety mechanisms sometime over design and the big risk is that or the big challenge is to really understand the system perfectly because if we don't understand the system perfectly we may introduce some safety measures in the device which will not be so useful at system level because Garrett for example will, in, will, will implement some safety mechanisms at the system level which will actually not use our own embedded safety mechanisms right and this is the challenge that we have in the semiconductor industry is to better understand the system so that we can design the right component with the right level of safety. I think that's a challenge as well, because typically tier one and OEMs who are expecting these high quality, functionally safe products from NXP 
aren't going to show them their system designs because it's their own IP that they've got. Uh, and they, they don't want to share. So it's a bit strange, you know, for me, when I go out and I'm selecting a microcontroller, I just, I just expect it to be safe. It's not a unique selling point. I expect it to already be there with everything that I need, but I don't ever think of these emergent hazards that I think uh, that Frank is talking about where the microprocessor or microcontroller manufacturer has no visibility. Of right, we've come quite a way actually in a few years of just expecting that kind of reliability out of those components. That brings up the topic that is the sexy and also incredibly difficult one of the autonomous vehicles and getting from here to AVs that are actually level four, level five, whatever, what we all imagine. Um, I'm guilty as charged of pushing those technologies. And I, you know, I test vehicles. I'm supposed to test them. I'm supposed to do that. But obviously people are using features like autopilot and sort of, uh, you know, adaptive cruise control in situations where we're not technically supposed to. So maybe Gareth, you could explain sort of what some of the interrelated safety issues are right now with that. It's a big hot topic, isn't it? A lot of money is being pumped into the autonomous space, you know, billions, tens of billions of dollars and pounds and yen and it's it's a big business some people are saying that it's you know we're doing this to save these 1.3 million lives on the road i'm not convinced about that i think that we'll save you know autonomous systems will save people because you know you're removing an unreliable person potentially from the situation but there's a problem with the statistical information we have associated with autonomy now, we know how many vehicle accidents are potentially caused by a driver, but we don't know how many are avoided by the driver. So we only have a, like a partial story or a partial problem space. And it's complex. It's not like uh, an autopilot on a plane, let's say. If you look out your window on, onto a busy street scene, it's a highly complex problem. And if you look out of your window in different areas of the world, it's a different problem. It just looks completely different because we're all you know, our cultures are different. The way we deal with organization and death and just living is very different across the world. And now we're trying to produce vehicles, autonomous vehicles that can deal with that very complex um, problem space. So it is a big challenge. And the, the industry knows this. I mean, we've, we, we have the beginnings of some kind of standard to follow the SOTIF standard, which gives some idea of how you would deal with autonomous functions, maybe not full autonomy at the moment. It is, you know, in early stages of development, but it's going in the right direction, I think, in terms of how we should approach these problems. They're not as deterministic as we're used to. You know, we're used to looking at failures and just trying to prevent them by producing very highly reliable devices or providing safety mechanisms to catch when those devices fail. But now the problem space is different. Now it's about the unknown. What tends to be called the black swans. You know, we, we don't know these, these issues exist until they exist. And again, this goes back to the engineers saying, well, there's an unknown element to the features that we're providing out into, you know, out into the environment. We should recognize that. We should recognize that actually the residual risk now becomes slightly unknown because we don't know how these systems are going to react under certain conditions. So the new standards are much more focused on the verification and validation of these systems, these autonomous systems. And there's lots of people struggling to find out how to do that. You know, how do you know the unknown? It's a very difficult question to quantify and lots of people are struggling over it. And in fact, in my experience, looking around the industry, ISO are working at it, UNECE are working at it, IEEE, Underwriter Labs, the BSI, 
there's lots of people in this problem space trying to work out how do we know if these autonomous systems are safe enough. Ultimately, we'll put them on the road and less people will die, we hope. You don't really want to sort of play with people's lives though, do you? As an engineer, I have this ethical duty to say, actually, I believe based on this evidence that the thing that I'm deploying isn't going to kill more people than an average driver. I think that's the current level that we're going for. Yes, it's certainly what we're after, obviously. That's sort of the ultimate goal. Driving is fun, but it's also, you know, the, the safety issues, the thing that's been pushing everything. Coming back to front for a minute, there are so many other issues that come up now once you look at that. There's the security issues with having more of these systems and relying on them. There are the environmental safety issues. Is this vehicle going to have to react much more quickly? The systems have to be faster. And of course, Earth just alluded to the AI issues, which I don't think are really solving the problems people thought they were going to solve, <laughs> at least in autonomous vehicles. But maybe, you know, you could explain some of the complexity now that comes down to you and the semiconductors that it will rely on. First of all, I have to admit that I, I really love autonomous driving, you know, and then the reason why is it's really because this automotive industry became sexy, you know, and <laughs> <laughs> I joined this uh, automotive industry in 2004, something like this. And I remember my colleagues at that time said, oh, why are you going there? I mean, it's so boring. <laughs> it's just like small improvement after another one. And then the future one is looking like the previous one. No? So very boring, boring industry and so on. And with this autonomous driving coming in the game, it was, wow, it was really sexy again, you know, and then and it, it's really given new dynamic into this industry and then and also completely changed the relationship between and the way of working between OEMs, tier one, tier two, and, and so on and so forth. And just to come back to what you said, John, as Garrett said, is that this autonomous driving is more and more going in the direction of how can we be as good as a driver? And how can we manage the, uh, let's say, all the environmental conditions? So uh, we have so many things, so many information to uh, to analyze. And then this leads actually to more and more sensors here and there. Uh, let's say more cameras and CMOS imager with like 4K, 8K and something like this. 8 to 12 cameras, multiple radars, lidars and so on. So it's a, a huge amount of data, massive data that you have to analyze. So there is clearly an impact on this, uh, on, the, on the performance that we have to deliver at system level. And uh, this is the first thing. And um, one thing which is actually coming in the game is this artificial intelligence, as you mentioned. I mean, how can, uh, how can I manage a massive amount of, of data and analyze them quickly? Artificial intelligence seems to be the solution, right? I just it seems to be the solution because everybody said, yeah, great. This is neural network is, is great. It's like a brain, right? So let's just use it and it's going to be fine. But actually, it's not fine. And at least from a safety perspective, we are not yet at the right level, I believe. So today, there are some kind of architecture tweak where you can say, I will have a main channel doing all the massive, let's say, computation with artificial intelligence. And to make it safe, I will do a kind of safety envelope or somebody call it sometime ODD checker, so design domain checker. So it's going to be a safety pass, you know, saying, okay, your main calculation is okay, so I can drive the car in this part of the road because it's free from objects or something like this. But what we see more and more is that even this second safety channel is supposed to be deterministic. Because as Garrett said at the beginning, ISO likes determinism. So the things have to be deterministic, right? And artificial intelligence and neural network are maybe not the perfect definition of, of something deterministic. And then we said, let's use traditional algorithms and so on. But today we see that this will not be sufficient. 
even even in the, the safety channel, we'll have to manage also massive amount of data to take the right decision and to be as safe as a human driver. And uh, this is why AI come into the game also in the safety channel. And then the big deal is how can I make it safe? And neural networks are generally implemented in a, in a big brain device like multiple cores, microprocessor or whatever. And we have to find a way to make it safe, at least even from the ISO perspective, which is not the only problem that we have because we can make it safe from a systematic fault point of view, hardware random fault point of view, but we're going to have the problem about does this training set the right one? And as Garrett said, is that it's it's okay as long as you train versus something you know, but what about something you don't know? And if you have not considered everything and the environment is, is changing a lot depending on weather conditions or the country you are driving and so on and so forth. So this is very difficult to manage this. You mentioned also security. And I just want to give a word about this security, which is coming also more and more important and impacting also the safety of the vehicle. It's, it's clearly one of the reasons why a vehicle may not be safe anymore is the vehicle is more and more connected to the cloud, right? And to the other vehicles and so on, to the to your smartphone and so on and so forth. So you have multiple attack surface where any hacker can actually modify or take the control of the car and then endanger the driver, you know, and the people in the vehicle. So this is why safety and security are becoming more and more interdependent. There is a nice term, a nice word from avionics that I really like. Actually, it's called um, uh, cyber safety. And I really like it because it's it's what is the impact of security of a cyber attack on the safety of the vehicle? Right. It's not the sexiest topic in the world, except that when you have a problem and then it becomes suddenly a point of attention. I've been one of those people that's had to reboot my car and close the door and turn it on and off just to sort of reboot the system and do a safety update after it had been hacked. Coming back to that, maybe, you know, Gareth, you have to do the systems. That means that sort of every chip, every component has to be somehow secure. And maybe you can explain what goes into those efforts. You're right at identifying it as a system level problem. It's the whole vehicle that is at risk. And in fact, with more highly autonomous systems and this unknown element, they're going to have to be updated in the field because we're going to learn new things about the way they operate and realize, oh, we've just spotted an unknown, we need to update. So in order to address these issues in a, in a timely manner, we're going to have to have something like over-the-air updates. You're not going to be able to take everybody who's got a car, it's going to all of a sudden take them to a dealership to have them updated. That would just be unmanageable. You wouldn't be able to do that. And then you would have to work out, well, what if somebody doesn't update it and this unknown is still there? So it seems like we're going to have to be updating our vehicles regularly when we discover these unknowns. And that immediately opens the door to a cybersecurity threat and therefore a safety threat. So what do we do? Well, let's, let's have another standard. That's always a good thing. So there are cybersecurity standards coming this way. I think um, ISO 21434 is out next year, 2021. And it's kind of aligned with 26262. So the, the V model outlined within that, you know, the V development cycle um, within ISO 2662 is sort of replicated. So you can see that you can do similar tasks, but with a slightly different uh, focal point. You know, for the security stuff, you're probably going to be looking at attack vectors. So you're, you're, you're assessing the threats rather than the hazards. There's analogies in there where, you know, you can you come up with a, you know, a functional security concept rather than a functional safety concept so they're very much aligned but again it's it's early days 
cars are currently connected and there's been numerous examples of people hacking them. So it is a system design issue, but it's also, Frank was saying, this kind of sexy realm of cybersecurity, you know, these, these hackers out there. It's very different from the gray world of, you know, functional safety and automotive domain. It's, these, these worlds are now merging into one where the automotive manufacturers must consider cybersecurity. In fact, in the new version of ISO 26262, it calls it out in terms of you need to address it. It needs to be clearly communicated when you're developing these systems because they are dependent on each other. So failures of your cybersecurity design will ultimately affect your, the safety of your vehicle. Therefore, you need to consider it. 20 years ago, people told me, well, we'll never let them cross the CAN bus. You know, <laughs> We're not going to let people do that, and that's just not going to happen. And now here we are 20 years later, and that's just not a reality anymore. I mean, you have to have the interaction of these different systems and sensors seeing something and triggering the brakes or triggering something else in the vehicle. To know that the guy who was dealing with, you know, the, the CD player understands the guy who's dealing with, you know, the clutch control. They're, they're in different worlds of automotive. So just to imagine that they would speak to each other, no, that's not going to happen naturally. You're going to have to put in place procedures, processes, structure within your organization to deal with those now cross-company issues. I'm more optimistic maybe than some people because automotive designers sort of do that already. You know, if, if I change something in the interior of the car, that usually has to go to a different set of engineers down the hall that are doing something else with the fascia of the car. I mean, they're all sort of so integrated already that hopefully, if there is a group of people that are able to do that, it seems like this is an industry that should be able to do that. One paradoxical thing that you mentioned I wanted to bring up with Frank, and that is, so you open up that connected car, which is what, sort of what we started with. Now you've made it so that you can upgrade the vehicle, but paradoxically, you've also added another attack vector into the situation, right, by doing so. I, I wanted to ask Frank, some of these chips used to be fixed function, they can't change, that's the perfection of them. But now, does that mean that more people designing systems and the OEMs want these chips to be upgradable or changeable in firmware to account for unforeseeable things? Clearly, yes. I mean, the answer is yes. We have to move to a different balance between hardware and software uh, into a chip. As a semiconductor company, we are generally defining everything for functional safety as hardware mechanisms, you know. So it's, uh, I would say, good from one perspective is that it's quite fast generally and then this is very well deterministic but it's not flexible at all and right now we we need to do this uh, so it has to be very well adapted to the system this is one thing and uh, and then since we want to be flexible across multiple systems then it would be good to have a different solution which is more flexible and the point that you mentioned is i think the key one is that this over the air update it will not be just about cyber security i think i do believe that with everything connected to the cloud you will very much analyze all the information, all the diagnostic and uh, feedback from the vehicle that will be given to the cloud and the OEMs will analyze it. And they will be able to anticipate any risk in terms of safety. And it's not about the security attack or whatever, just like, oh, my functional safety concept, I was foreseeing this. And finally, based on the feedback, based on the data that are provided to the cloud, I see that maybe my safety concept is not robust enough. So I would have to update also my safety concept on the fly. And in that case, I mean, if you have a hardware safety concept, then I mean, you cannot update, right? So we have to move more from hardware based safety concept to a more software based safety concept. And this is actually the direction that we are taking in the at least in NXP is 
that we are thinking more and more about some uh, software safety concept and software features that can help us to get rid of this fixed hardware solution. I can see the uh, the OEMs are doing the same thing. They're realizing that they need far more software engineers than they'd ever predicted. To de-risk their business, it's not really necessarily a safety risk, although it is connected. But if you have to recall you know, millions of vehicles, that's going to really affect your company's profitability. Whereas if you can update them, keep them at this optimal safe level remotely, that, that just makes a lot more sense. It's more profitable, people are safer, and you could potentially monetize it by adding features. You can have the crazy insane mode if you know if you pay your thousand dollars and press this button and all of a sudden it, it appears in your car i wanted to ask one more thing because i'm curious about the systems gareth you know one engineer was saying look i can see a way to fix the uh, transmission issues that we have through software and i can change that but i can't just download that to the car because i don't know the rest of the powertrain torque front to rear issues are what the wear and tear issues are you know the car is supposed to go 150,000 miles without any kind of service there if i change these is that how do you integrate that with you know the people that make the chips all the way to the oem for those kind of in-field updates, I think to try and second guess how the vehicle is going to react is going to be very difficult. I'd imagine if you were if you were deploying those systems, you would simulate as much as you could. You would get your vehicles on test tracks. You would have some kind of confidence. It would be in your processes that you know you've got this level of confidence that what you are deploying is safe. The proof would be in the pudding, though. I mean, people are doing it now. Cars can be updated over the cellular network, uh, and they are. And we haven't seen any problems yet. So it seems like currently it's working, but we are expanding the problem space by adding more features and having more vehicles doing this. Like, you know, I've got a, I've got a vehicle now. It doesn't update over the air. I think you'd have to buy potentially a high-end vehicle for that to be to be the case. I think that's a great discussion to give people a great sense of the functional safety and the issues involved. Thanks again to Gareth and Frank for joining us and talking about functional safety. And thanks for joining me. My name is John Quain. Join us next time on the Smarter World Podcast. Smarter.